website. But you might be thinking, why would we look at the things that Jesus didn't say? Why on earth would you do that? There's a whole lot of stuff he did say. Surely we should look at those things. Well, if you look at your Bible, the New Testament, the first four books are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're a historical record of Jesus' life of how he was born, of how he grew up, of um, his teachings, his ministry, his sermons, how he interacted with people, his miracles, etc., how he died, how he came back to life. In many Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red because they're so important, they're so powerful, they're so profound, they're so life-changing. So Jesus' words are really important. But the problem that we as modern man has, we look at Jesus' words and we want to soften them. We want to reinterpret them. We want to make them sound a bit gentler on our ears. And so we, we kind of, you know, we, we change a bit of, of what Jesus was saying. And so sometimes when we look at what he didn't say, it really highlights the things he did say and helps us understand the power and the truth of his actual words. Does that make sense? Awesome. So this week we are looking at what Jesus didn't say about happiness. Many of us think that, you know, well, because God is love, he wants me to be happy. God would say to us, go and do whatever makes you happy. I'm afraid he didn't say that. You won't find that in the Bible. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. He never said that. He never said, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves and avoid the cross and follow their heart. Jesus never said that. He never said, ask and it'll be given to you because God's your celestial sugar daddy. <laughs> he never said, ask and it'll be given to you because God's your heavenly father Christmas. He never said that. Well, let's look at what he did say. Turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 2 this morning. At dawn... Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So there's, he's in a public place, there's people around, he's having, a, he's having a Bible study, open air vibe. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees gate crashed, sorry, brought in a woman <laughs> caught in adultery. With Jesus, everything was open invite, so there's really no gate crashing anyway. Anyway, they brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? The first part of verse 6 says, They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. So they, they're in the town square, they're in this public area, people are gathering around Jesus, he's teaching, it's a life group in daytime, open air, right? And uh, these Pharisees come in and they bring this woman who is most likely got very little clothes on. Why? Because she was caught in the act of adultery. And these men parade her in front of Jesus. They ask these questions. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this passage. Where was the man who was also caught in the act? Because it takes two to tango. Yeah? Why... Where was the guy? He's also at fault. Now, sexist culture, perhaps, but the point was that these men did not care about the woman at all. They were using her 
to, as a trap. They were, she was the means of trying to get Jesus to stumble over his words and say something wrong so they could get Jesus in trouble. They didn't care about the woman at all. And here she is, barely dressed, ashamed, humiliated. This is probably the lowest point in her life. She knows the law. She knows she should be killed for what she's done. Probably the most desperate place in her life, and these men don't care about her whatsoever. It's a trap to try and trap Jesus. And Jesus is in a bit of a no-win situation. Have you ever been there? If you say one thing, you're in trouble. You say the other thing, you're in more trouble. If Jesus said, yes, you're right, she should be killed, put her to death, Jesus loses his reputation of being merciful and forgiving and loving. But on the other hand, if he says, well, no, let her go free, he's going to be condoning adultery, which is wrong. God would never have that. Can't go against God's word. So this is what, he's do, this is what he does, the rest of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. They ask him a question. It seems like he ignores them. Maybe he's got ADHD. Maybe he's got his earphones in and like he didn't hear what they say. But he's writing on the ground. People for thousands of years have wondered, what did Jesus write on the ground? We have no way of knowing for sure. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe he wrote down the sins of the accusers, those that were standing there. Because the, the Greek words that are used to write down is katographein, which means to write against or to have a record against someone. So it's possible, we don't know, that Jesus was writing the sins of the accusers. And he sees these Pharisees standing there, this poor woman who's looking desperate and scared and ashamed and embarrassed. Maybe he sees Phil the Pharisee. I'm making it up. I don't know if there was ever a Pharisee called Phil. Maybe he sees Phil the Pharisee. And because Jesus is the Son of God, or maybe the Holy Spirit reveals to him that actually last week, Tuesday, Phil the Pharisee, his browser history has www nudebabes.com. Well, I don't know if there is such a website. But, but maybe Jesus has this insight into their sin. <laughs> maybe Jesus is writing www. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to make it contextual here, right? Maybe he wrote something cryptic for all these different Pharisees that only they would have known. Jesus knows my sin. I don't know. Possibly that's what he wrote. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That phrase, without sin, is quite a strong one in the Greek. It means literally to not even want to sin. Don't know about you, maybe this is a little bit too, too real, uh, but there are times when I'm tempted and I don't sin, but part of me really wanted to have sinned at that point, Right? Jesus saying, you who did not even want to sin, you can be the one to throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down, verse 8, and wrote in the ground. At this, those who began to go away one at a time, those who heard this began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Interesting, like the Pharisees, all of us are very good at pointing out other people's sin. We're good at hiding or ignoring our own sin like these Pharisees did. 
Has no one condemned you? Where are they? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Some translations say, go now, go and sin no more. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Go and do whatever makes you happy, young woman. He didn't say that. He didn't say, go and follow your heart. He didn't say, it doesn't matter what you do, just don't hurt anybody. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. And we've got to be careful we don't look at that statement or that instruction as judgmental. This is kind, compassionate Jesus saying, go now and leave your life of sin. Go now. There's a sense of urgency. Now. Don't keep wallowing in your sin. Go and leave it. Go and be free. There's a better way to live. Don't have to live in your shame anymore. Be free. Don't live as you have been living. There's a much better way, Jesus is saying to this woman. It's not judgmental. It's full of grace and love. Do you know why we give in to temptation, to sin? We all do. None of us is perfect. It's because sin sounds fun. In fact, sin is fun. How many, show of hands, do you agree, would you agree, that sin is fun? Okay, a few of you. Some of you are thinking, if I put my hand up, am I going to be struck by lightning in church? Shouldn't say that in the church, right? Hebrews talks about the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is fun. Sin is enjoyable. If you don't think it's fun, you haven't done it properly. <laughs> or you're lying, which is the worst thing to do in church. It's fun for a little bit, but then it messes us up. Here's my first point this morning. Sin promises satisfaction, but at the cost of disobedience to God and at eventual pain to us. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobeying God and eventual pain, trauma, hurt, heartache, trouble, whatever words you want to use, it'll come to us. Let's uh, try and, again, contextualize this woman. Maybe, maybe her marriage wasn't great. Maybe her, her husband was inattentive to her. Maybe he didn't, maybe he took her for granted. We married for 15, 20 years, and you can kind of pass each, pass each other like ships in the night. Maybe he was verbally abusive. So in the office place where she works, there's plenty of colleagues, male and female, but one of the guys is a nice guy. Very friendly, he's very outgoing, he pays her attention, compliments her on her work, project well done, likes her ideas when they're interacting in the workspace. Notices when she colors her hair, her husband never does, but this guy does. Very innocent, nothing wrong with that, okay? He's funny, maybe he's thoughtful. He starts following her on Facebook, starts commenting on every Facebook post. Suddenly, she looks forward to seeing him at work when she goes there. Still kind of innocent. Then one afternoon, they have to stay late, finish a project. And he suddenly opens up about his own marriage struggles and what he's going through. And suddenly he says, well, I wish I'd married someone like you. I think I've made a mistake with this current wife. Suddenly, her heart is racing. She knows what's happening is wrong, but it feels so right. He accidentally brushes her arm. 
Maybe it wasn't accidental. He wishes that he'd married someone like her. She realizes her emotions are out of control, but suddenly she thinks, well, maybe he's the one to make me happy. Maybe he's what I'm missing. She has coffee with her best friend on the weekend, and her best friend says, well, you deserve happiness. Look how hard you've worked. You're in a loveless marriage. You deserve to be happy. Follow your heart. Step by step, little bit by little bit, things that weren't so innocent become sin. Suddenly, she's humiliated, half-dressed, with a whole bunch of accusers waiting to throw rocks at her. How did she get there? Well, sin promises satisfaction, the cost of disobeying God and pain to us. And in the culture we live in, we tend to approach life with a relativistic view. In other words, there's no absolute truth. What's true for you cannot, doesn't have to be true for me. You live your truth, I live my truth. Just be true to yourself. That's what we say, don't we? Don't judge each other, but my truth is not your truth. Do whatever makes you happy. Second point this morning, if we don't have an absolute truth, then truth is defined by whatever makes me happy. Okay? If there's no some external objective reality saying this is the truth, whatever makes us happy becomes our truth. And when my happiness is the bottom line, I judge all my actions by my happiness. In other words, if something makes me happy, it must be good. If something doesn't make me happy, it must be bad. We judge truth in a relative way. Well, if I feel good about it, then it must be the right thing to do. Do you see how that's a really bad way to go? And the challenge that we have with this culture that we're living in and knowing God and what He wants from our lives is that we think that happiness and holiness are at odds, that they're mutually exclusive, that you can't be happy and holy. And if you choose to be holy, well, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. That's what we think. Many people, maybe you here have been through this. Maybe you're going through it now. You, you're living a life of doing whatever makes you happy. But then suddenly God shows up, gets your attention, and he draws you to himself. And you realize, actually, I need to follow this God because this is where my purpose lies. This is where my identity lies. But you have this struggle because you, you don't want to give up your fantastic, fun life you're living because if you give it up and you get real about your faith, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be boring. It's going to be no fun. You know what Jesus didn't say? For God so loved the world that he wanted his children to be holy and miserable. He didn't say that. We have a loving father, a good heavenly father. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 7, the words of Jesus in red. If you then, though you're evil, by comparison to God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? God is good. Holiness and happiness are not mutually exclusive. In fact, my last, not last point, next point, number three, holiness 
is the way we get to happiness. Let me give you an example. Max Lucado, he uses this analogy of a fish in a beach. Because many of us, we want to be holy, but we don't want to be unhappy. <laughs> we want to follow God, but we don't want to miss out on what we think is happiness, right? So, so Max Lucado uses this example. If you take a fish out the ocean and you plonk it on the beach, the nice hot sand, it's coming up to summer now, sand's getting hot, is the fish going to be happy? No. <laughs> what if you give the fish a pile of cash, credit cards, investment, big bank account, it can do whatever it wants. <laughs> it's not going to be happy. Give it a deck chair, some sunglasses, pina colada, mojito, some, some cocktail to drink. What if you throw a party for the fish, get its best buddies out to see the best fish DJ, have a good time? Is it going to be happy? No. What if you give it the latest iPhone? What are we on? 13, 14. I don't even know what we're on now. I've got a 14. <laughs> that might change. What if it can take selfies and post on Facebook? Hashtag fishbod or I don't know, whatever. What if it gets lots of likes on social media? That is a hot fish. Obviously, it's sitting on the beach. Look at that tail. Whoa. Is that going to make the fish happy? No. <laughs> it's never going to be happy on the beach. Why? It was made for the ocean. It's going to die. It was made to be in the sea. Friends, you and I, we were not made to live apart from God. <laughs> we weren't. We were called to be holy. We were called to be separate. That word that Sonia shared, be separate, be different. God's called us not to be like the world. If you find yourself living in the world, not happy, not having the things of the world fulfilling you, it's probably because you weren't meant to be living apart from God. See, the things of this world don't satisfy us ultimately. They don't, they can't. And so we need to lower our expectations of the world and raise our expectations of the things of God. We often do it the other way around, don't we? Sure, gotta live as much as I can in this life because the afterlife is just gonna be boring. I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but you know, heaven, do as much as I can on earth now. Actually, we've got the wrong way. We've inflated our view of, of the world and what it can provide us in terms of fulfillment and happiness. Actually, we need to lower those because they'll never make us happy and raise our expectation of the things of God. No amount of new vehicles, new cars, or a new boat, or a new boyfriend, or an amazing vacation, or a pile of money in the bank, new hairstyle, or a ripped body, or pair of shoes, whatever gets you going, no amount of stuff will ever give you that joy that your heart craves. You can never do that. Because holiness is different to happiness, but they're not exclusive of each other. This is what David says in Psalm 16. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in other words, with God, is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. So sin offers us fleeting pleasures, temporary, short-lived, that ultimately result in pain. 
But when we're with God, when we're in His presence, eternal pleasures that can't be taken away from us. When Jesus spoke to the woman who was guilty, caught in the act, it was her most shameful moment, her lowest point in her life. She thought there was a death sentence coming. You know what Jesus didn't say? I'm embarrassed by you. He didn't say, after all I've done for you, this is how you choose to live. You're pathetic. How dare you shame my name? Jesus never said that, friends. And to you and I, Jesus never says, I'm ashamed of you. I'm embarrassed about you because of your sin. He never says that. He does say there's a better way to live. Does anyone condemn you? No, neither do I condemn you. Why? He's forgiven us. But he's saying, don't live in shame. Don't live in the fleeting pleasures of this world. You're made for something better. You're made for something greater. Be free. Leave this life of sin. Go now. Walk in truth. Be liberated from trying to live on the beach when actually you're designed for the ocean. Many of us, I think, are, we have this void somewhere in our lives. Something's missing. We can't quite put our finger on it. So we try and fill the void with stuff, with the approval of others, with food, and we overeat maybe, or with stuff, and we overspend, and we think the next delivery from Take-A-Lot is going to make us happy. Oh, when I can open that box, there's a nice sound. And you open it, and it's new and shiny. You've got to rip the packaging off it. Some of us think like that. The next thing will make me happy, but it never does. Some of us, as we're looking for happiness in the wrong place, get trapped into cycles, into addictions, smoking, drinking, prescription medications. Maybe you're trapped in a world filled with lust and pornography. Maybe you've got low self-esteem and so you've become critical. Pick apart everything everybody else does to make you feel better about yourself. Maybe you're in the wrong kind of relationships over and over again. But sin can trap us because we get trapped because it promises us some satisfaction. Ultimately, it doesn't lead us to God. So what do we do when we are trapped in the cycle of sin, whatever it might be? If we can't get out ourselves, we need someone to rescue us, and it's Jesus because he's faithful and kind and loving. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, and God is faithful. You should underline that in your Bible. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Friends, God is so gracious. He is so faithful. There is always a way out. There is always another option. Always, always, always. His grace never runs out. One of the songs we sung is grace as boundless as his love. He never gives up on us. We'll never do too much sin that he's embarrassed and will walk away. So when we find ourselves trapped, he provides a way out. There's always grace. There's always the potential to freedom. You might not be able to see it now. Doesn't mean it's easy to get out of what you trapped in now. It might be some cost, might be difficult, but there is a way out, always. 
Our fourth point is that every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. Every time we're tempted, every time we're faced with something, it's a moment, it's a chance for us to trust in the grace of Jesus. We'll never be found wanting if we trust in the grace of Jesus. He always gives us a way out. He never looks down on us and says, oh, I'm too embarrassed, I'm too ashamed. How could you do that? You know what to do, what not to do. No, he says, be free. Go and leave your life of sin. It's, it's a statement of hope, actually, that we can live differently, and he enables us to do it. And notice that Jesus is not trying to motivate us through a fear of punishment. Oh, if you sin, all this bad stuff's gonna happen to you. If you do that thing that you shouldn't do, lightning from heaven, or your car will break down, or you'll fail an exam, or whatever. There's no threat of punishment from Jesus. Notice that, okay? Why? Because the Bible says that the punishment for our sin has been dealt with on the cross. There is no punishment left. There's no fear in love. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment, the Bible says. Are there consequences to our sin? Yeah. You commit adultery like this woman, you might be paying child support. There are consequences to every action. You laugh. I know people in this church, even people who are not Christians, they did stuff Life had to change because of their stuff. It wasn't the judgment of God. It wasn't the punishment of God. It was the consequence of their sin. Some of them got divorced. The most incredibly complicated life when you're divorced. It's not God's plan. It's not God judging you. It's just the consequence of our sin. God does not condemn. Why? Because he's punished sin on Jesus. It's happened already. So, so fear... The threat of punishment is not Jesus' style. Anyway, fear is an inferior motivator. But he says there's a life that you can live. You're like a fish out of water now, but wait till you get to the ocean. Wait till you learn how to live in truth and be free. There's a better way to live. He motivates us with a longing for what's good. My last point this morning is that God forgives us. He spoke about forgiveness last week, but the way that we get free, we start by repenting. We start by repenting. Repenting, repenting is not remorse. They're different. My kids have a lot of remorse when they're in trouble. I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> not I'm sorry for what I did, or I'm sorry that I broke your heart when I said that thing. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's what remorse is. I I'm gonna learn from what I did wrong so I can hide it better next time I... That's remorse. Jesus calls us to repent. Re means to turn around. Pent, like think penthouse, it's high. Repentance is turning from the lower way of living of this world to the higher calling of God. Repent means to um, change our mind, to change our thinking also means to change our actions. So we were doing one thing, we're going in one direction, living for ourselves, and repent means to do a 180 and go the other way to step towards God. Just like the prodigal son, the moment he turned and started coming back, there's no punishment, there was just a father waiting to embrace him. 
repentance. Some people think and wrongly teach that you only have to repent once in your life. That moment you put your faith in God, that's when you're repenting and you're turning to him. But the Bible instructs Christians to repent over and over. Why? Because we mess up. Because we reinterpret Jesus' words the wrong way and follow our own version of them. And we end up living not the best version of our life. So we have to repent, change how we're thinking. Bring it back to the truth of God's word. Change what we're doing, our actions. That's repentance. Lining up our lives and our thinking with God's word and what he says. Not easy when Jesus says to us, go and leave your life of sin, because sin is fun. But when we see the impact and the effect of our sin, and we scope down years and decades, man, his words are true. It's like, this is not good for you. <laughs> Can we bow our heads? I want to pray for us as we're, as we're ending. Father, I'm so aware that my life is not perfect and that there's not a single human on planet earth that has ever done it right. There's a sense of humility that we come to you this morning, Lord. And we're so encouraged by these words of Jesus, these kind words, these loving words, these gracious words. Go now and leave your life of sin. Father, I'm sure for 90% of us, you'd probably say that to us about something in our life today. There's not a single person that's immune, that's perfect. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would highlight that thing or those things where if we had to stand in front of a group of accusers with that area exposed or, or naked, Lord, we would feel like that woman, ashamed of what we've done. But Jesus Thank you that you look at us and say, I don't condemn you, but I'm empowering you to go and live differently. I'm empowering you to live in grace, to live a life that is worthy of the calling you've received. I'm empowering you to, to live in black when everyone else is living in white, to be different, to be set apart, because that way to live is no way at all. It might seem like a fleeting pleasure, but in eternity, there's something much greater Friends, only God can satisfy us fully and eternally. So this morning, Father, we all repent. We all say we're sorry for what we've done, how we've thought, what we've said, how we've acted, our selfish deeds, our spiteful deeds, our angry deeds, whatever they are. Father, we repent this morning. Lord, help our thinking to align with your word. Help us, Lord, to leave this life of sin. It might be a cost, it might be difficult, but Father, we pray that you would help us to see the amazing things you're calling us into and not be sad about the things we might be leaving behind. Father, I pray, empower us by your Spirit. Father, if we think we have no sin, would your Holy Spirit convict us now? Show us, shine that light into our lives, Lord. Thank you, Father, there's something so much better when we can be free. Father, we are, there are those who are stuck in a trap, in a cycle of addiction possibly. Father, we pray for a breaking of those chains. In Jesus' name, 
a liberating, Lord, from the bondage that's held them back and a, a running into freedom in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, this is a, this is a serious deal to Jesus because he knows we're gonna be stumbling if we don't deal with stuff. And can I say it's not easy to deal with stuff. We like to hide it. We like to cover it up. But can I say, if, you, if God's spoken to you today, draw a line in the sand. If you need help, chat to your life group leader. Chat to someone who can help you. You might need someone to walk with you to get free. Man, oh man, Jesus says there's a much better way to live. And it's in his presence. It's with him. It's following him. Let's not be a church that is crippled because we're too scared or too embarrassed to deal with our stuff. Let's not be like that. <laughs> We're, we've all done stuff. There's no, there should be no judgment or, or shaming in God's people because none of us are perfect. If God doesn't embarrass us, he might expose stuff because he knows it's better for you to deal with it, but he'd never embarrass you. Amen? Let's live free, guys. Thank you, Lord, that we can be free. <laughs> Have an amazing week. No life group this week. They're all closing down so we can be at Equip. We'll see you Wednesday night. If you're able to get there Thursday morning, Friday morning, otherwise the evening sessions. There is childcare there, so you can bring your kids. There's amazing play areas. You can sign them in, etc. Uh, but don't let anything stop you getting extra input into your life. It's going to be amazing. If you're joining us for the foundations course, 10.30, we're going to get started. We've got a whole bunch of amazing notes here. Stick around. It'll help you put the right foundation in place for the life that God wants you to leave, lead, and leave. <laughs> Amen. Have a great week, guys. Cheers.